All right, if you are staying in the room because you're above the age of fifth grade, congratulations. <laughs> you're stuck with me. Uh, flip your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and really, sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be covering 9. We need to pick up in 10, though. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we're going to pick up around verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Uh, let me kind of set the stage a little bit for where we're at and why we're here. Um, so we have been walking through the book of Hebrews the last couple of weeks. We've made it all the way through chapter 8. Um, I promise you that I'm not skipping over chapter 9. We are going to talk about chapter 9. Uh, but to be able to address the concepts of chapter 9, we have to fast forward a little bit to chapter 10 and pick up some things out of chapter 10 first. Um, and so, man, I am, <coughs> excuse me, coughing. That's what I'm doing. <coughs> Excuse me. I am excited uh, to preach this message because there are a lot of hot verses in Hebrews 9 and 10. Um, and so, for example, let's just see if any of y'all know any of these verses off the top of your head. These are verses that I grew up hearing all of the time out of pastors' mouths and deacons and Sunday school teachers and church people in general. So let's see if y'all know these. Uh, one of them says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Anybody know? remission of sins or no forgiveness of sin, if you're reading ESV. All right, so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's the verse, or that is one verse in the chunk of scripture we're going to cover today. Uh, or you might have heard this one. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes... Nobody knows that one? Okay, Jimmy. Yeah. Nope, not eternal life. Judgment. There it is. Right. There we go. So it's appointed for man once to die. And after that judgment, we're going to talk about that verse today too. That's in there. Uh, or how about this one? When Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down where? At the right hand of the Father, right? So all of those verses are verses that maybe we've at least kind of heard in passing throughout of our time in church, uh, throughout all of our time in church. So uh, we're going to see all of those verses today. They all come out of Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, they are very powerful verses. They are also verses that get pulled out of context a lot. Um, and so, for example, the, uh, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Uh, we, a lot of times, will hear that in revival messages where a pastor is pushing hard for an altar call, and it's like, hey, you're only going to die once, and after that, you face judgment. And while that is a true concept from Scripture, it's not a bad application of that Scripture, uh, that verse has less to do with us and more to do with Jesus. We're going to see that today. Um, so there's a lot of these verses that are highlighted verses uh, for us as Christians that sometimes we just need a little bit more context for. Um, so we're going to see that, but we're also going to see today uh, how the writer of Hebrews ties together uh, uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You've heard me talk about those terms before if you've been here for a little while, uh, but here's what they mean. Orthodoxy is right knowledge or right understanding. Orthopraxy is right living or right application. So we can have orthodoxy without having orthopraxy. That means we can know a lot about God without actually doing it, right? Uh, and that, that's empty faith. That's religion, right? That's I come and I know what the Bible says, but it doesn't really apply to me. That's orthodoxy, all right? Orthopraxy is the opposite of that. That's people who try to live a good life without really understanding why they're doing it. Uh, so that's people who try to earn their salvation or do good works a lot without really understanding the foundation and the theology of why they believe that. So both of these concepts by themselves separate are kind of dangerous things 
okay? If we tend to get one-sided on that, uh, orthodoxy, for example, there's nothing wrong with knowing God's word. But if you refuse to apply it to your life, it is worthless for you, okay? Uh, and, and if we go to the other side and it's like, man, we live such good, holy, and pleasing lives for God, but we have no idea why we're doing it, well, that's also an empty faith, all right? And so there's danger in both of those. But what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10, the passage that we're going to kind of focus on this morning, is that the writer of Hebrews ties orthodoxy and orthopraxy together in the course of about four or five verses. And so there's almost this knot of a passage that happens. It's like taking two different strands of rope and tying them together. And the passage we're looking at today is the knot. But we also have to understand where both ends of that rope go. Because we got to know the orthodoxy, we got to know the orthopraxy, we got to know how both of them work hand in hand, all right? So that's what we're kind of looking at this morning is the knot, and then we're going to evaluate kind of both ends of that strand uh, and see where that takes us, all right? So uh, Hebrews chapter 10, let's pick up in verse 19, <coughs> excuse me, it reads this way, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I apologize to anyone who's involved in kids camp last year. A song just popped up in your head. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, notice the capital D, uh, uh, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray over the reading of God's word. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Uh, we thank you for the writer of Hebrews and that you laid it on his heart uh, to record such wonderful words for us. And God, this morning as we just rejoice over the fact that those words have been preserved for years, Father, literally thousands of years, so that we could sit in this room today and pour ourselves over it. To, to seek out the truth that is there. Father, we thank you for the providence uh, of your spirit, God, how it has just guided these words to us today. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply them accurately to our lives, that we wouldn't do so with uh, negligence, but that, Father, that we would do it with purpose and intentionality. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, we've kind of focused on the knot uh, this morning, and so uh, there's a lot of things happening in that knot, but let me break it down into two basic sections for you, and they do kind of fall into the orthodoxy and orthopraxy sections of the rope. Uh, so let's look at those two things. Uh, the, the orthodoxy part of this begins with the phrase, therefore, right at the beginning of our passage. So it's like he's grabbing the end of this rope, and he's getting ready to tie it to this end of this rope, and he's preparing this side. So he says, therefore, brothers, let's talk about what 
what's here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for the, uh, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's all the therefore statement, the orthodoxy side. Then we get the orthopraxy side that gives us a practical thing to do. It begins with the phrase, let us. And in fact, we'll see that phrase repeated multiple times throughout the rest of our passage. Uh, He continues to say, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, blah, blah, blah. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another for love and good works. And he just continues. And in fact, he will continue with that let us pass pattern all the way through the remainder of the book of Hebrews, all the way up until chapter 13. We will continue in that orthopraxy side. So we've got orthodoxy, the therefore since, and then we've got the orthopraxy, let us. So here's what God has done. So this is what we will do. And that's what we're really looking at. But to understand that fully, we need to take the concepts of the ends of those ropes and really kind of tie it back to what he's talking about. So we've got to kind of explore chapter nine a little bit to understand what's happening here. So let's walk just phrase by phrase uh, through uh, chapter 10, verse 19, but we're going to tie it all the way back to the principles that we find in chapters eight and nine. Uh, So he begins, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. All right. So we're going to focus on this. We have confidence to enter the holy places. Flip back with me to the beginning of chapter nine. Chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews says this, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. But behind a second curtain, or the second curtain, was a second section called the most holy place, or some would describe it as the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff with, uh, that budded uh, and the tablets of the covenant that Moses received the law on. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He doesn't have time. But then he says this, verse 6, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. See, on the orthodoxy side of this thing, the writer of Hebrews draws our attention all the way back to Old Testament structure of worship, which we've talked about multiple times in the last several weeks as we've studied through the book of Hebrews. We shouldn't have to talk too much more through that to understand kind of the layout of what the tabernacle looked like, that there was an outer court, a holy place where the sacrifices were kind of brought in, and then the holy of holies, which was a room that was designated for one man to enter one time a year. What I want to focus on this morning Uh, is what was in that room specifically and the fear that it imposed. Because look at the beginning phrase. It says, therefore, we, uh, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Why is it important that the writer of Hebrews says we have confidence to walk into this holy place? This room that contained the Ark of the Covenant was such a place of reverence and fear 
that literally as I was studying this week, I was reading about stories of these high priests and what they had to go through ritualistically to be able to enter that room. And it's insane. I mean, it's like, it's crazy, the rituals there. I mean, it's like, you got to wash your clothes. You got to perform a sacrifice. You got to wash your clothes a second time. You got to do all this stuff. Like there's like 18 different things that they got to do just to be able to walk into the room. But here's where it got really interesting for me is where we start to study about how the high priest just had a mentality about walking in there. And it was like the high priest would walk into God's presence. That's what they said was happening. Here's the ark represents God's glory, his Shekinah glory, his presence. They walk into this room, but here's the cool part about this, the crazy part, is that the high priest would spend as le- the least amount of time possible in that room because he was scared. He was afraid that if he did something wrong, God was going to strike him dead right there. This is incredible. In fact, there was literally stories that were uh, in external writings, not in scripture, but if you go out into some external writings, you read these things about the high priest on the day of atonement, uh, preparing a feast and a party and a celebration that was scheduled to happen after he did the day of atonement stuff, because it wasn't a celebration of what God did for them. It was a celebration that the priest survived. That was literally, it was like, hey guys, I got, I got to walk into God's presence today. Um, And so I just, you know, y'all pray for me because I'm a little intimidated right now. And man, if this goes sideways, I'm dead. Uh, But man, if I make it out of this, oh man, what a relief. And we're going to throw the biggest party ever because I, I did it right, man. And like I survived being in God's presence. Can you hear the difference between Old Testament understanding of being in God's presence versus the New Testament version of us being in God's presence? Because we're like, we want to be in God's presence. Sweet. Let's take our shoes off and let's sing some cool songs. And like, it's just like, we just, we just want to sit in your presence, Jesus. Right. And it's like, no, this was a foreign concept to the writer, to the, the audience that the writer of Hebrews was writing to. That God's presence to them was something to be so feared that it was like, I can't just walk into God's glory. I'll get struck dead if I do this the wrong way or if I'm just the wrong person. And so for the writer of Hebrews to make a statement, let us with confidence then walk into the holy places, the people that were receiving this letter from the writer of Hebrews would have gone, whoa, hold up, bro, you can't do that. And so he set the stage all the way back in chapter 9 for us that this holy place that we're talking about is not the holy place of the tabernacle, but remember that the tabernacle was a shadow of something else that was going on. It's a copy of what's happening. We've hit that multiple times too, but he, he literally says these preparations back in chapter 9 verse 6, these preparations, preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, but into the second the high priest goes, and he but only once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. You know what he's saying in that moment? 
as long as we have this tabernacle where God's presence is isolated into this little room and we keep him in his little box and we send one guy one time a year through this curtain into God's presence, we will forever live in fear. So let's tear down this concept and understanding of what we have about God's presence and let's see what it looks like to do this differently. And oh, by the way, that's only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he literally just breaks that down for them of, hey man, you've lived your whole lives understanding that God's presence is something to be afraid of. But because of the work of Jesus, you can now enter freely with confidence into God's presence and you can call on his name whenever you need it. And it's not because of anything you did. It's because of what Jesus did. This is a transformational statement for the people who are hearing this letter for the first time. This is radical for them. For us, it's like, yeah, we grew up being in God's presence. Like, that's normal, Chris. Like, everything's okay. Quit freaking out. No, for these people, this was like game changer. You mean I don't have to send somebody to do my spiritual work for me anymore? I can do that? You mean I can address God directly? You mean there's no barriers anymore between me and God? But I love this word, confidence. This word, confidence, speaks of not... Um, I, I taught a youth lesson several weeks ago, and we talked about the difference between uh, confidence and pride. And pride is about puffing ourselves up. It's about who I can make myself to be. Confidence is about puffing God up and realizing who God is and who he's created us to be. And so we can never outpuff God we can never be more confident than God can actually be. We can be more prideful than we actually are. That's possible. But we can't outpuff God. And so the writer of Hebrews, he says, literally, draw with confidence, knowing that you can't outdo God in this moment. Draw with confidence into the holy places. But there's an important qualifier in chapter 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and then he says, whoa, whoa couple things. You can't just walk up into God's presence still unannounced. <laughs> you have to do it by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. It's literally like there's a spiritual lock on the curtain between us and God's presence. And the only key to the spiritual lock is blood. In fact, again, as we're just kind of walking through the end of that rope, chapter 9, he says, man, uh, back in verse 7, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but only once a year, and very important, he doesn't do that without taking blood. It's got to be there. That was the commandment of God from all the way back in Genesis and Leviticus and Numbers. The commandment of God as we walk into God's presence is that there has to be blood covering us. But the beautiful thing about chapter 10 as we talk about this orthodoxy piece is that it's like, man, it's not by the blood of a lamb or a goat anymore. It is by the blood of Jesus. In fact, again, jump with me to chapter 9 and look with me at verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so not the tabernacle that we see on earth, but the thing that that tabernacle was a shadow of, 
the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not uh, of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? He says, man, there is this transition from the blood of goats that unlocked this spiritual lock into the tent or the copy of God's holy place. But the real lock and key to the real holy place, the real one that is, that is the, the thing that this down here was the copy and shadow of, the real lock that's up here, the thing that God had been building towards since Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, the thing that God was trying to restore and redeem that had been locked up from the people of God, the key that would unlock that lock is not the blood of a goat or a bull. It was the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. That is what unlocked the door for us. Not in the earthly tabernacle, but in the true tent. But it's not just about the blood. It's about how often that blood must be applied. So keep in mind that the Day of Atonement was a yearly ritual. It was one of many rituals that the people of Israel had to go through to remain in a right relationship with God. And multiple times throughout this piece, uh, it, it tells us that, man, this is a once for all piece that Jesus's blood was offered and it only needed to be given once. Look with me at chapter nine, verse 21. It says this, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There's your hot verse. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites. But the heavenly things themselves, they had to be covered with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself, listen, repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, here's the point of this verse. The writer of Hebrews comes out and he says, hey, listen, man, the, you understand that these, uh, these rituals, the day of atonement and these sacrificial laws, they were on repeat. And it's like, every time I sin, I have to walk back in the tabernacle. Every time the year rolls around, the high priest has to walk into the holy holies, right? Like we got to have these sacrifices but also understanding that this is a copy or a shadow of something better. And if the something better is going to be really better, it's got to be different. And it's got to apply not just temporarily, but permanently. 
And so we see Jesus come, and he goes not with the blood of a goat, but with his own blood, and he does that once. And this is where we get the hot verse, for it is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Again, we pull that verse out, and we apply it to ourselves a lot, and it's like, hey, yeah, get your life right with Jesus, because you're going to die, and then after that, you're in his presence, and it's judgment forever. And that's true, but it's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is actually directing us to what Jesus did in this moment. Jesus had to come and he had to die once. And just like me and you, because God, as Jesus, as the son, came once as a whole man, 100% human, he had to die once too, just like us. And just like us, when we die, we will face judgment. But here's the kicker for Jesus He will face judgment too, but not for himself. He was righteous. He he never sinned. What What is, there's no judgment to face. So instead, Jesus dies once, and then rather than facing judgment, he becomes the judge. That's what he said. He said, man, he comes not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He says, man, listen, what we need to understand about what's happening in this transition from the shadow tent to the real tent is that we went from a temporary fix that has to be repeated over and over and over again to a once for all fix where Jesus came 100% as a man to die. And he only had to do that one time, just like me and you. But because of his perfect life, his perfect track record here on earth, he didn't have to face judgment after that. He became the judge. So it's appointed unto man once to die, and then after that, the judgment. It was also appointed unto Jesus once to die, and after that, the judgment. The point of this verse is not that you and I will one day face judgment. The point is that Jesus is the one who will judge. And he will do so perfectly and rightly. But what I love about the way the writer of Hebrews phrases this is it's not a condemnation piece. It's not, well, Jesus lived perfectly, so now he has the right to come and cast judgment and blame on everybody else. It's not really what he said. He said Jesus lived this perfect life, and he died once so that he could come and he could save. See, the earthly tabernacle was designed to restore something that was broken, But it was a judgment. The people of Israel were judged constantly by God. But because of the blood and the work of Jesus, we don't face judgment anymore. Hence, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, Jesus isn't here to condemn us. He's not here to judge us. He is here to save us through his blood. So it's not on repeat. So it's not the blood of an animal, it's not on repeat, but it's also through a curtain. Remember that the holy place and the holy of holies were separated by a veil. They were separated by uh, this curtain uh, that kept people out of God's presence. And what I love about uh, chapter 10 is he says, man, uh, oh, I forgot this piece in the rope. So let me add one piece. You won't find this anywhere else in the original argument, right? He gets to the end of his argument. He's getting ready to tie the orthodoxy piece up. And he goes, oh, by the way, it's, it's through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain. That is, oh, I forgot to tell you, that's through his flesh. 
So, so it's like this curtain is the flesh of God, that it's like, man, Jesus' flesh is the thing that was separating. And what I love about the imagery of this is like, flip with me uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Watch this, it gets crazy. It gets crazy. Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> Look with me at verse 45. We're at the crucifixion scene. Jesus is on the cross. He's about to breathe his last. Watch this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So we get three hours of pitch black when it should be sunny. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. I'm not going to pronounce that in Hebrew. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling out to Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yelled up with his spirit. Notice it doesn't say what he yelled. <laughs> He's just screaming. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth was shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. Man, through the flesh of Jesus Christ, the barrier between us and God was torn down. Notice how the writer of Hebrews is dismantling the tabernacle piece by piece. You got the Holy of Holies. Now, it's not about a priest walking in that one time a year for you anymore. You can walk in that with confidence. With blood, yeah, but not the blood of a goat or a lamb. Through a curtain, yeah, but not the curtain and the veil that's in the tabernacle. It was through the flesh of Jesus Christ. He is literally tearing apart and dismantling the shadow so that we can catch a real glimpse of the real thing. All orthodoxy. Let's keep going. There's another sense statement. So back to Hebrews chapter 10. Sorry to make y'all flip so much. But Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And verse 21, there's another sense. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we don't need to cover this because I already preached a sermon on it. It's the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 8. So he says, hey, there's this other sense. We have this great high priest who's over the entire house of God. So literally what the writer of Hebrews has done at this point is he has finished the end of this rope. He has it prepared to tie it to the orthopraxy. He says, man, we've talked about all this stuff. We've dismantled the tabernacle. You understand how this copy relates to the real copy up here or the real original that's up here. And now we have to tie that to practical. Now we have to attach that to what does that change for a Jew who is converted to Christianity, who is trying to figure out who Jesus is and what difference he makes in their lives. And how does it tie to us today? How does understanding that there's no holy of holies and the, the veil has been torn and the blood is there, how does that change who we are today? And that's where the writer of Hebrews switches gears from the orthodoxy to the orthopraxy and he changes from since therefore to the let us. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's several phrases in this verse that I want to break down. He says, first of all, let us draw near with a true heart. There are other passages that use the word true. For example, Jesus uses this phrase when he speaks to his disciples. He says, there's coming a day when the true worshipers will arise, those who worship in spirit and in truth. This idea of trueness, this true heart, is the idea of genuine, uh, of being genuine. It's the idea of there not being a copy or a shadow anymore, but it being just honest and real. He says, because we can draw confidently into God's presence, let us come with a true heart. For me, as I think through this on this side of the rope, as I think through orthopraxy on this and how this applies to me, man, there are several times that I try to hide from God in what I do. We've talked about the story of Adam and Eve and the fig leaves versus the skin. I mean, there's a lot of times that I try to cover up with those fig leaves. There's a lot of times that I try to solve my own sin problem rather than just coming to God and saying, God, here I am, I need you. But he doesn't just say, let's approach him with a true heart. He says, let's approach him with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is the beginning of the rope that will tie us into Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith. It is a list of men and women of God from the Old Testament that we can look to as examples of faith. And so he says, hey, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You know what separates us from the high priest and his, our ability to walk into God's presence? The full assurance of our faith. The high priest walked in in fear that God would strike him dead if he messed something up. We walk in confidence and full assurance, trusting that we serve a good God who loves us. And then this is where I start to geek out. He says, hearts sprinkled clean. So we, not only do we uh, draw near with a true heart, not only do, do we draw near with full assurance of faith, but we have to draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with blood, and with bodies washed with pure water. Now, I want to spend just a couple minutes on this because you can read that and you can breeze past it and you can go, the blood of Jesus, yay, and we can move on. Or we could dig a little deeper and we can go, holy crap. Y'all ready for a holy crap moment? All right, sweet, let's do it. <clears throat> so, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. Look with me back at chapter 9. We already read a couple of these verses, but chapter 9, verse 12 and verse 13. Jesus entered, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So there's the blood piece of it. We already celebrated that. Yay, Jesus, way to go. But then verse 13, we get a deeper piece. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of ever sanctify for the, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. Now, this is so deep. What the writer of Hebrews just immediately took his audience to was not the blood of the sacrifice of the day of atonement. That's what we've been talking about all along. But he now switches gears to a different sacrifice. And he talks about the idea of what our Catholic brethren have turned into holy water. Let's 
explore this a little bit. He says, man, not by the blood of, Christ, or by, by the blood of a bull or a goat uh, or uh, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. This comes directly from Numbers 19. If you want to go read that later, go read that later. We don't have time this morning. But Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, outline for us what they are to do, what the Jewish people are to do if they ever came into contact with a dead body. So here I am, a Jewish man or a Jewish priest, and there's a dead body, and I accidentally touch this dead body, or for one reason or another, I have to pick it up and move it. There was a ritual that I had to go through to re-cleanse myself because I came into contact with something dead. This is why, by the way, the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in handy when Jesus is talking to them because you remember how the priest and the rabbi, they passed on the other side of the road from the Samaritan. It wasn't just because he was a Samaritan. It was because they thought he might be dead. And if they touched him, they were unclean. So I'm gonna stay on this side of the road, right? So he says, man, look, Numbers 19, you touch something dead, you're unclean at this point. Something has transferred from this dead person to you and you can't walk into God's presence now because you've touched this dead thing. So what do we do? Numbers 19 gives a very specific ritual. It involved finding a red cow. Red, some people would translate the word maybe more like brown. So we find a brown cow. We take that cow and we sacrifice it, but not in the typical way. We don't drain the blood out of it and use it in the holy place. We leave the blood in the, in the cow. It's the whole thing. And we take that cow, we kill it, we lay it on an altar, and we burn it. Then we take the ashes of that cow, and we take running water. So we pick up water, we pour it, and as we're pouring the water, we pour it over the ashes, and we collect the solution of that into a different container at the bottom. So now we have living water, moving water, that now passes through the ashes of a dead brown cow and into another container. And what comes out of that is what they would use to bathe themselves in to become ritualistically clean again after touching a dead body. And they had to do it twice, on the third day and the seventh day. So I touch a dead body, I'm unclean for a week. And on the third day of that week, I got to bathe in the water that has passed through the ashes of a red cow. And on the seventh day, I got to do it again. Now, our Catholic brethren, like I said, they've kind of tied this into blessed or holy water. It's miracle working water, right? And so we get holy water out of that. That's not what's going on in this passage, though. Check this out. This is crazy. So the writer of Hebrews draws our attention to Numbers 19, and he says, Hey, for if the blood of goats and bulls and or the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, a heifer why would they go through that? Because they touched something dead. So we get this process, if, if man, if they're going to be covered with this water that's been sanctified through heaven, if that sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, if, if that takes something that came in contact with something dead and makes it clean, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, more ties to Numbers 19, because the cow had to be without blemish, but if he came, if he, if he offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works? Pick up on the fact that he uses the word dead. See, because in the Old Testament, it was this external piece. I come into contact with a dead body. I'm now unclean. 
The writer of Hebrews says, hey, we're in a new era at this point, and it's not about this external touching of something dead, but it's about the fact that there's already something dead inside of you. There's already something messed up in you, and man, it's more than just your soul. He doesn't say it purifies your soul. He doesn't say he saved your spirit. What did it talk about? Your conscience. And so he says in us, it's almost this idea of like, hey, before Jesus, we all had this dead conscience. It's like we didn't know right from wrong. And not only did the blood of Christ save our soul, but it did something even deeper than that in us. Not only did it resurrect us and give us the hope of a salvation, but it changed us for this life. All of a sudden we get this new stirring in us and we realize that there is right and there is wrong. We understand that, man, there, there are things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do. But, but listen to what he says. He says, he purifies your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so it's not just an understanding of what's right and what's wrong and being able to do what's right. But it's this idea that, man, now we know what's right and what's wrong and we do it for the right reasons. It's not just about walking into a tabernacle and performing all these circumstances and rituals and all this stuff so that we can be in God's presence because we did good works. It's about the fact that we've been purified from the inside and therefore we can walk into God's presence with confidence because God has transformed us and because of that, my conscience is alive and I desire to do good. I desire to serve my heavenly father in that you breeze past numbers 19 man you miss a huge chunk of what's going on in that how much more will the blood of christ who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works we got to finish real quick we can jump back over to hebrews chapter 10 that was just the first let us let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Then he says in verse 23, the second let us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So if I have a right understanding of who Jesus is, then I can draw near to him with a true heart with full assurance sprinkled clean with an alive conscience and a pure body. And because of that, I will hold fast my confession. Not because I'm faithful, but because he is faithful. We used this verse last year in our kids' camp, and we had a whole song that we sang too many times every day. <clears throat> and uh, when my kids hear this verse, they immediately start singing this song again. But what I loved about this song was that it repeated the phrase, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful, faithful. All right, and it literally would just repeat that. Like, yeah, it, Duncan even remembers the motions. That's crazy. All right, so, but he who promised is faithful. So we can draw near with confidence. There's a third, let us. Verse 24, he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The last bit of this orthopraxy, as we think about all of the things that we now understand about God, that we now understand about the true tent and not the temporary tent, is that one of the obligations and responsibilities that we have as believers 
It's to stir one another up. It's to take something that has gone stagnant and to bring new life to it. It's to walk into each other's lives and go, hey man, I want to encourage you. I want to push you a little bit. I want to challenge you and I want you to do the same with me. That's where we get this verse, another one of our hot verses where he says, don't forsake the gathering together of believers. You've heard that and a lot of people apply that too. Hey, don't forget to come to church on Sundays. That's true. You should come to church on Sundays. I'm preaching to the choir. Those who are watching on the live stream, jerks. All right, so don't forsake the gathering together of believers, but the bigger purpose of this verse is not really about a worship service. It's about the gathering together of believers with the purpose of stirring one another on. And that can happen in this room. That can happen at Starbucks. That can happen at Target. That can happen in your home. That can happen in your dorm room. That can happen wherever you find yourself. But stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet with one another, encouraging one another more and more. So we get all this orthodoxy. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is how it has changed everything that we've ever known. And this is what it does for us. This is who we become because of what Jesus did. And what I love about this verse as we get ready to close is that it draws our attention to the responsibility that we have to follow the greatest commandment that Jesus ever gave us. Love God love others. The writer of Hebrews says, man, you got a right understanding of who God is? Great. Go love people. Go stir one another up in this thing. Go challenge each other that, man, the, the, the curtain is gone. It's been torn. Let's get in God's presence. Let's live in it. Let's do good works, not for the sake of, of, of good works, but for the sake of honoring God. Let's encourage one another more and more. And I want to focus on one last thing. He says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day and day is capitalized. What day are we speaking of? It was appointed for man once to die and then judgment. Jesus died once and there will be a day when he comes back to save his people. The writer of Hebrews uses a phrase here, to speak of the day when God comes back for his people. And he capitalizes that. Now, obviously, in Hebrew, there's not capital letters and lowercase, or really in Greek at this point, there's not capital letters and lowercase letters. But the word itself is honored because it's a special and holy day. we got to encourage one another more and more as we get closer and closer to God coming back for us. Now, as I said at the beginning of our message, we now get to leave all the orthodoxy stuff so y'all don't get to hear me talk about the temple anymore or tabernacle or sacrifices. We're kind of done with all that. We've talked about that for like three weeks now. All right, so we're done with that. Now we get to get into the orthopraxy side and we get to finish out the book of Hebrews with about two or three more chapters worth of information about how we apply everything that we've learned. How do we take the fact that Jesus is greater than angels? Jesus was greater than Moses. Jesus was a great high priest. His covenant is greater. That the tabernacle was a tent of the real thing. How do we take all of that stuff and now go live in it? We got to track the rest of that rope out, right? So that's what we'll be doing over the next couple weeks. It should only take us about two or three more weeks. And we'll be done with the book of Hebrews. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. We've been in it for like a year now. All right, so there's that. Guys, I want to pray for you this morning. And I want to encourage you. 
to, to continue to pour yourself over Scripture. Um, what I have to say on a Sunday morning is just the result of my study. Uh, but man, if you're just dependent on my studies to grow in your faith, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty weak studier. So you better study on your own and, uh, and learn some stuff, man. I want to encourage you in that, all right? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing a couple songs together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to study your word. God, we thank you for the work that your spirit did, uh, or that your son did, rather, on the cross. Uh, the blood that was spilt, not just for the saving of our souls, but for the raising of our conscience. God, that you didn't just apply salvation to the end of our lives, but that you gave us something to live for today. And so God, I pray that you would stir that up in us as we stir it up in each other, that we would live in it through orthopraxy, God, that we would take all the head knowledge that we've gained, all the stuff about Old Testament rituals and sacrifices and all the blood and crazy stuff, and that we would learn how to walk in it, to live it out, to understand what it really means to live a life with a living conscience, not one of dead works. That to understand what it means, God, that we don't have to walk into your presence in fear, but that we can draw near in confidence. God, to understand the power of the blood of Jesus and everything that it has done for us. God, help us to be people who honor and glorify you every step of the way. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.